This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. One more step to go before the City of Toronto could rename Dundas Street. After the City's Executive Committee voted unanimously to do so, it paves the way for City Council to rename it along with other civic assets bearing the name of the late controversial Scottish politician Henry Dundas. A motion to initiate a public engagement process goes before City Council at its two-day meeting next week. If approved there, Dundas will officially get a new name, but not right away. As a community advisory committee made up of Black and Indigenous residents and business owners will come up with a short list of potential names for consideration for Council in the spring of next year. If all goes well, new names for the street and civic assets could be put in place about a year after their approval by council, so we're talking the spring of 2023. For some historical context, I spoke with Ron Stagg, history professor at Ryerson University. This is a very interesting situation. I'm on record as wanting to keep statues up that are of of controversial figures, uh, and put a plaque on them to explain, so that it's a, something that can be used for future generations to learn about the situation. But in the case of Henry Dundas, he has no connection with Canada. His his name was put on the village of Dundas and the Dundas Highway, which came to Toronto uh, by the first lieutenant governor, John Graves Simcoe. So he never came to Canada. He didn't have anything to do with it. The issue that people are have brought up is whether he tried to stop the uh, end of slavery, uh, a bill to do away with slavery. And the, the counter argument is uh, he didn't think it was going to pass, and he uh, therefore didn't support it. Uh, again, we'll never know for sure. But the key thing for people in Toronto is they say. He had no connection whatsoever. And Dundas Street itself is a creation of the early 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. It didn't exist. The original Dundas was to come in along what is now Blue Street. Anybody who travels on Dundas will notice it does a lot of uh, quick curves and uh, moves around a lot. It's because they joined a lot of small streets to make Dundas. So Historically, uh, it doesn't go back that far. So that's the one side of it, basically, the historical side. He has no connection to Canada. The uh, street has only existed for a little over 100 years. And so it's something you can get rid of. But then there's the other side. Now, can you, as far as historical context, address some of the uh, disputes being raised by descendants and others who say... Uh, what the city staff based their uh, views and recommendations eventually on simply are not accurate, not on the points that you just touched upon, but uh, especially it seems that the descendants feel what's being said with him 
sort of being in the way of abolition of slavery simply doesn't cut it. It's really not true in their view. This is, a, 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 again, a, a controversial thing. Um, the argument is that it wasn't that he was against uh, ending slavery. It was just that in the particular context, he didn't see uh, that the law had any chance of, of passing. Again, um, from from what I know, I can't make a decision on that. I think I'd be remiss without asking you about, uh, I guess, your workplace, given the controversy there, too, with, of course, uh, there are those uh, students there that uh, refer to it, of course, as ex-university. How are things at Ryerson slash ex-university these days? <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, there are faculty uh, who are supporting the whole idea of changing the name of the university now. Uh, I'm on the other side. I've been published in various uh, newspapers and so on to explain that Edgerton Ryerson had nothing to do with residential schools. He was actually a friend and supporter of Indigenous people. But that's not a popular view among uh, a number of people. There seem to be uh, some... Uh, I guess, similarity in what we've just been talking about with Henry Dundas and with uh, you talking about uh, Everton Ryerson in terms of how he was perceived in terms of, uh, in in Ryerson's case, with residential schools and in Dundas's case with uh, with slavery. Yeah, the only difference is that Everton Ryerson was a Canadian uh, known for setting up the Ontario public school system. Henry Dundas had nothing to do with Canada. That's the big difference. Ryerson University history professor Ronald Stagg. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. While fewer cases are being recorded at hospital emergency departments and ICUs, Members of the medical community are concerned and frustrated about treating COVID patients who are not immunized fully or at all. Some are speaking out about this amid the threat of the Delta variant. Toronto family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel and Dr. David Carr, an emergency physician at the University Health Network and McKenzie Health Hospital, join me to discuss. Things have changed a lot. It's a much simpler, a much better time as majority of people are vaccinated. Our COVID cases have fallen dramatically. I mean, working actively full-time in emergency department, I, I cannot tell you the last time I've admitted a person with COVID-19. But what I can tell you is I'm yet to admit or refer a patient for admission with COVID-19 who was fully vaccinated. So these are interesting times. What a great medical advance we have. And it's exciting to see the effect it's had on curtailing the fourth preventing a fourth wave. Not asking you about your bedside manner, but what are you finding at uh, the bedside in talking with patients uh, who you find are partially or not vaccinated at all? You know what? I, I think it's a lot of this, like one of the things that Kieran Moore talked about, Dr. Moore, was that about 1.2% of all infections aren't fully vaccinated. So the people we're seeing who are persons under suspicion who are have COVID are usually not vaccinated. Um, what they are are not who you think they are. It's not, Bob, these people who are militant anti-vaxxers. A lot of this is an access issue. So we have to be very clear that, as Dr. Moore pointed out, we get the next 
incremental 5 to 10% of those doses to the people. And I know that if I had the ability to give vaccines in the emergency department, I would say that at least 80 to 90% of the people who don't have a vaccine would gladly take it with that sort of knowledge translation, education, and you can imagine the key role of family physicians in helping to solve this as they can look after their patients who are unvaccinated. I mean, we have some small steps to take to get us to the next level. You mentioned family physicians, so let's bring in uh, Dr. Gorfinkel. Uh, What about you? What are you finding? I'm finding an increasing number of patients have vaccine hesitancy, not so much because of safety or efficacy reasons, not so much because they prefer natural immunity, Some are expressing a bit of distrust in health authorities. There's that. And there are others who simply close the door to the concept of getting vaccinated, the true anti-vaxxer. And it's it's very, very difficult. There's still a group out there that says, gosh, the research has been done too quickly. I'm concerned about that. I want to wait and see what happens to other people. You know, it gets hard to listen to in the face of, so many deaths and so many hospitalizations. I mean, this really turned everybody's world upside down. And also knowing that such vaccines, that we have vaccines that are just so highly efficacious and including against the Delta variant. So I worry about the group that we can't access through reason. We can't say, you know what, these are the numbers. These are, you know, what can I help you with? They're essentially closing the door. That's the group I worry about. I certainly believe and agree with Dr. Carr that if we could get them into emergency rooms, it'd be tremendously helpful and into family practices. You know, historically, the reason that hasn't been done is because we wouldn't have been efficient enough in rolling them out. You know, who has, is this a key of efficiency? Truly, it has been, and the saviors among us have been the pharmacies, the pop-up clinics, simply because they can really ram them out in numbers, in high numbers. And that matters, especially for vaccines like messenger RNA vaccines that require specialized storage requirements. You know, they, they had to be kept very, very cold. Otherwise, we risked having significant wastage, which we certainly did not want to do at the beginning of this pandemic. We will at some point have enough taking cases. It's impossible to keep down because at some point we will stop vaccinating 220,000 people in this province every day. And when we do, there will be some cases. You just hope that those who are vulnerable and eligible get it. And I do believe that with enough people getting it, we really will be able to, whatever uptake we have, it will be nowhere like our third wave. Dr. David Carr, an emergency physician at the University Health Network and Mackenzie Health Hospital, and Toronto family physician, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Coming up after the break, you'll hear from a descendant of Henry Dundas. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zuma Radio. Welcome back. As we've reported extensively, the city is a step closer to renaming Dundas Street after the executive committee unanimously approved the idea. It'll go before city council next week. Has Henry Dundas's role in the existence of slavery in the British Empire been misrepresented? His descendant, Jennifer Dundas, says it has. 
She joined Libby along with Patrice Dutille, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. The way, the primary way that this has been misrepresented is that he's been painted as opposing abolition when throughout his life, Henry Dundas spoke against slavery and the slave trade. Not once in public or in private is there any record of him speaking against it. Uh, he started his legal career um, opposing it. He was uh, the lead counsel in a case where a slave uh, was fighting for his freedom. Henry Dundas took that up to the highest court in Scotland and won, and not just for that person, but he won a statement, a declaration from the court that nobody could be a slave on Scottish soil. And he went ahead then uh, in his po- political career, and uh, 1792 was the first time he spoke about it publicly, and he was the first politician in Parliament to say, we must abolish both slavery and the slave trade together. We can't just focus on one. It won't work. If we do with them together and we do it gradually, then we can make progress. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Patrice Dutil. Uh, in a general way, um, what do you make of the way this whole situation has been portrayed you know, in in the city staff report and in general? Really, it's a complete travesty. It's a complete travesty. Everything Ms. Dundas just said is exactly correct. We have to stop thinking that the 1790s is 2020. It's not. We're dealing with a completely different period, and these this little generation, we're talking about William Pitt the Younger. We're talking about Wilberforce, that you've already mentioned. We're talking about Dundas. We're also talking about John Gray Simcoe, who was sitting in the House of Commons, who was who bore witness to the fact that when William Pitt the Younger saw his motions defeated, I mean, these guys were all against slavery, fundamentally against slavery. They fought slavery. And today we have this crooked figure coming out of 2021 saying, oh, those guys 200 years ago, they stood against progress. It's completely the opposite. These guys were the very embodiment of progress. In their day, they were heroes. Well, I mean, we we are living in a moment where, evidently, the tragic events of uh, the United States last May, death of George Floyd, has has had reverberations. So Ryerson is is looking at changing its names. The, The Ryerson statue has been demolished. We are changing John A. McDonald. Schools are removing the name McDonald. No, the architect of our country is being forgotten, erased from public memory, and now we're looking at that. You know, logic should dictate that we start to remove all the names of problematic people in our history, and maybe our future is going to be, uh, you know, a future of streets called Street Number One, Street Number Two, <laughs> yeah. Street Number Three. Uh, and you know, and that's you know, that's one of the great things about Toronto is that we actually have names to our street. We could have been New York. You know, we we have names to our street, and each name should have a memory, and we should be telling our citizens what the true nature of those names. If there are names that are really repulsive, if there are people who have done truly atrocious things, truly atrocious things, then their names should be removed. But let's use our street names as an open book of history and educate ourselves to the wisdom of the people who uh, who, were, who were honored, 
and to the wisdom of those people who made the honors in the first place. And let's not erase 200 years of Dundas. I hope that there's a motion in, in the in city council that the budget that is awarded to this project will be exactly zero and that we can all forget about it. Patrice Dutille, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University, and Jennifer Dundas, a descendant of Henry Dundas. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Ontario's NDP leader is on an election-style tour of the province, talking about all aspects of health care. Andrea Horvath promising to abolish for-profit long-term care and to clear the wait list. And she also wants to make sure nursing homes, which failed seniors during COVID, don't get their licenses renewed. She's also promising to spend a billion dollars to fix home care. But does she have the right prescription? Libby spoke with Natalie Mara, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition, as well as Provincial Opposition Health Critic, Frangelina. I don't trust them at all to, um, to fix uh, anything in our long-term care system. Uh, let's face it, we have laws in place that said that all of our long-term care are supposed to get a comprehensive uh, review every year. They did eight of them in the three years they have been in power, and we have 626 long-term care homes. What happened to the rest of them? We know that some long-term care homes have been cited with uh, shortcomings, with serious gap in care uh, that puts the lives uh, of their residents in, in jeopardy, and nothing happens. They continue to have their license renewed. Um, the, the owners, uh, usually they're a number of corporations, uh, just um, know that all of their rooms will be busy all the time. It doesn't matter what condition they're in. People will continue to pay $2,000 a month for those little rooms, and they don't care. And the government has the tools to do things better, but so far has refused to use any of those tools and keeps handing over uh, good money after bad to those for-profit corporations. Uh, Natalie Mara, we have a new minister of long-term care. Uh, it seems to me that the government knows they they have to look like they're fixing this or it's going to be a big problem come election time. So what do you think about it? 4,000 human beings, 4,000 residents almost in long-term care died from COVID-19 in Ontario alone, and many more died from malnutrition and horrible negligence in conditions that are just unacceptable. And really, honestly, um, nothing has changed. I mean, the care levels now are less than they were. They're lower than they were at the start of the pandemic, so they have not been improved. There, Not one home has been fined not even the very worst, and the government has been sitting on powers to find the homes since they took office. They were they, The uh, previous government, Eric Hoskins, when he was health minister, passed new powers to find the homes up to $100,000, uh, and they've been sitting on it. They've just refused to enact that part of the legislation. Not one license has been revoked, not one. Not even the homes that were infested with cockroaches, where food was left rotting, mattresses put on the floor so the residents couldn't get up and walk around, like conditions that you would face criminal charges for if it was your pet that you kept in those conditions. Uh, And not only that, but now they're giving thousands of new bed licenses. These aren't renewals. 
the licenses are over, um, and uh, and so they have to rebuild the homes. Uh, these are the oldest homes that haven't been renovated in 50 years or redeveloped in 50 years, most of them owned by for-profits, and they're giving new licenses and expansions to the same companies that uh, that engaged in that kind of behavior through the pandemic and before. That's completely unacceptable, and we are in full support of the call for those companies not to be um, given new licenses and rewarded for their terrible behavior and not to throw good public money after bad, you know, at these homes. We should be developing them and running them in the public interest and in the interest of the residents and not taking, you know, not-for-profit and greed. I can tell you that there are often many more layers. Your for-profit, we'll say Bayshore, Paramed, or Care Partners, um, often subcontract. So if you had needed physio, they would have subcontracted your physio to another for-profit company who would then sometimes uh, subcontract also to another, and all of those are layers of administration. Uh, could we do better? Yes, absolutely. For-profit was supposed to do things better, faster, cheaper. None of that happened. Our home care system quality took a nosedive. We're asking for minimum standards that would apply to everyone, no matter where they are, where they live. NDP health critic Franz Jelena and Natalie Mera, Executive Director of the Ontario Health Coalition. I'm Bob Comsick, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Daryl in Toronto is another listener who doesn't understand why Dundas Street should be renamed. Yeah, I think this is just a really, really dumb idea. I, I can't understand. It's obvious from your show that there's no unanimity within the city about this. So how has this committee come to a unanimous decision, you know, unless they're just kind of too dangerously inbred with themselves, um, they don't represent the city. So how is it that they're making this decision? And again, I, I agree with everybody else, like take the money, you know, and, and use it to help people. This is mere appeasement and it, it, it serves no real purpose. Um, think of all the different names, you know, it's just ridiculous kind of situation. And I think at the very least, they should have a referendum with the next municipal election. Pat in Toronto wanted to talk about the NDP's promise to overhaul home care. The problem is who is going to pay? And, you know, it all sounds nice to say that we can find new methods to do this, but we've got an aging population, myself included, and there is going to be a great demand, and we've got to get this and get it paid for. And there isn't a lot of money out there to be to be to be had. So I mean, it all sounds great, but you know, the problem is many of the people coming up with these ideas don't know anything about accounting or money or where it comes from. Government can't pay for all of this. It's that simple. NDP leader Andrea Horvath's promising to abolish for-profit long-term care, but Jan in Scarborough says changes should not stop there. 
It's not only the for-profit that needs to be overhauled. My mother was in a city-run home and was quarantined to her room for over a month at the beginning of COVID. The staff brought the virus to her, and it killed her in 36 hours. I'm so sorry. Now, the thing is, is that the things that I saw going on in the home in the three years that she lived there... It's not just for-profit. It's the city, too. They need to overhaul the care to the seniors because some of the stuff I saw made my stomach curl. And if I spoke out, it came back on my mom. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Nancy from Richmond Hill on the renaming of Dundas Street. I think it's pathetic, it's ridiculous, it's a waste of money, it's our tax dollars money, our taxes keep going up and up because there isn't enough, there are people dying in the streets, and we are pouring millions into this nonsense. Whoever done this, Henry, was dead. He may not have been perfect, but he did his best. best. Those were the times we have apologized. We deeply regret all the hurt, all the wrongdoing. No one would ever do that again. At that time, they didn't know any better, and they worked towards correcting. Okay? Nothing is ever enough for some people. I wish that they would just open their pocket, and maybe if they had to pay, all those that want the name change, pay up, because the rest of us do not want to. Our taxes are too high. That goes for Dundas Street and for all the other streets that they want changed. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back here on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.